0: This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, thank you for coming this morning. Uh, My name is Kevin Shipp, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. A couple of things I want to say just real quick uh, before we dive in uh, to the subject matter and before we pray and ask for God's help is I am very, very excited about this class and this material that Drew has pulled together uh, for us and for the church I think this uh, endeavor that we're embarking on going through material like this uh, is critically important for the health of our church, critically important for helping you, helping ourselves, helping our church grow in knowledge of God, but also in our love and devotion for God. This is critically important. And I think the way this has been laid out also helps with that, that it's not just read this. Or come and hear instruction, although we will do both of those things it's also pushing you to spend time reflecting on god's word and answering certain important questions to ensure that you're not just hearing god's word but you're thinking about meditating on god's word with an eye to applying god's word in your life. so that's really our passion in doing this class and and I, I can't think of a more effective way to do this uh, that we that we've tried over the last don't know, 15 or 20 years, so very excited about this class. Um, One of the things I want to point out that I'm also excited about that maybe is something that's missable uh, as you do this class is I think this class helps uh, the church get uh, more familiar with or oriented to our church's statement of faith. So if you don't have a copy of our statement of faith, shame on you. No, actually shame on us for not making it like more obvious and available. Um, But our statement of faith is is just a fantastic document. It represents careful reflection on God's Word and careful interaction with, really, the historic confessions of the church. So if you are familiar with historic confessions of the church, especially those that emerged out of the Protestant Reformation, and you start reading our Statement of Faith, uh, you hear echoes of these uh, historic confessions and creeds, and what I mean by that is there's a little bit of plagiarism that took place, if I should be so bold as to say that. Um, but that's the kind of plagiarism you want, okay? Not actually plagiarism, but you get the idea there. We, we subscribe as a church to a body of doctrine that has its roots first and foremost in the scriptures, but is also um, insignificant. In almost universal agreement with all of these historic confessions that have been handed down to us throughout church history. So what we are teaching you, uh, by, in our humble estimation and by God's grace, will be the truth of Christ, the truths of Scripture that, that the church has treasured throughout the centuries. And so we are teaching you the historic Christian faith, and that is our heart during these sessions. Um, So, before we dive into session three here, uh, let's take a minute and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, we are grateful for Sundays, especially after this past week where we were unable to gather. We're just freshly reminded that these times are unique, these times are precious, and that we need these times in order for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, to be instructed by your word, to be encouraged and built up in our faith as we sing, as we have fellowship. Lord, we need the church, and we need Sundays. And so, Lord, we pray that this Sunday you would meet us, minister to us, that we would be edified, built up, corrected, rebuked, um, and that we would grow as we behold Christ as a church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just to make sure we're all on the same page with what we are doing this morning, we're going through chapter 3 from the material, the Christian Foundation's material. So what we'll be talking about this morning are really four subjects. We'll be talking about God as He has been revealed as Trinity. We will be talking about God's attributes, creation, and then providence. So those are the four subjects that we'll cover this morning and given the, the, the nature of the way this class is built, this is not going to be just me lecturing. Uh, this is going to be some instruction, some time for you to share uh, so, some of the outcomes of your assignment, and then back to some instruction and, and so on. So that's how we will actually work our way through this material. But the big question that this session is trying to answer is this, this session is trying to answer what is God like? And trying to do that in the most foundational or fundamental way from a biblical or Christian perspective as we can. We don't have time in an introductory type class to do a deep dive into all the attributes of God. And to do that justice is going to take years anyway. So we're going to do all of this really quickly in about 35 minutes. Okay, no pressure at all. Okay, so A.W. Pink once said, and I think many people have heard this What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, and I do agree with that sentiment. So what we think about God is is significant in who we are and shaping the way we view the world. God, as revealed in Scripture, is the triune creator and sustainer of all things. That's a small statement, but can be unpacked as I said before, for years or even decades. But first off, I want to start with this idea that God has revealed himself in Scripture as Trinity. So here's kind of the main doctrinal statement I want to say in this section as we focus on the Trinity. The one true God is triune, or three-in-one, eternally existing as the three persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. The interesting thing about this idea of Trinity is that there's not like a section in Scripture that explains the Trinity directly or explicitly. Like Paul doesn't have a section in Galatians where he says, now on the Trinity, and then talks about the Trinity. But as you read Scripture, really from beginning to end, you begin seeing these ideas laid out. So this Idea of Trinity is implied pretty much everywhere in Scripture as you see God acting in uh, his creation. Uh, Another way of saying this is, although not explicitly taught, if you go back to some of our historic creeds and confessions, you will have things like this that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from the Scriptures. So this idea that there are things that are explicitly taught, then other things that are taught as you step back and synthesize what is being said are clearly in Scripture. So that's where we see the Trinity emerge. Also, one thing that we have to... Always guard ourselves against is the fact that you have the the infinite incomparable God revealing himself to human brains so that means there's going to be aspects of mystery or things that we just can't fully wrap our minds around but we want to embrace the fact that in in times as we study God and seek to understand him we will bump up to the limits of what he's revealed And we will have to embrace the mystery that lies beyond what has been revealed. We do want to be careful not to go beyond what God has revealed in his word. So we're never going to fully understand this. Not on this side, at least, of eternity. But scripture does present God as Trinity. And I'm going to walk us through just a few places that show us that. Again, you you saw this, many of these things in your assignment, but by way of... Uh, of emphasis, I want to point out a couple of things for you. So first off, there's some major affirmations we want to make uh, as a church, as we see God revealed in Scripture, that there is only one God. There's only one divine nature. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... Three? Four? One. The Lord is is one. And in another place, the prophet Isaiah says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. It's almost as if he's trying to make sure there's no confusion. It's kind of the way I tend to teach my children. I'm going to say the same thing nine ways. Maybe one of those will stick, okay? Isaiah, and and, and I need this as well. The apple does not fall far from the tree. I need To hear Isaiah say, I am the Lord, there is no other, besides me there is no God. So scripture very clearly demonstrates for us that there is only one God. And beside this one God, there really is no other God. But then we also start seeing, as we go through scripture, that that this one God reveals himself as three persons. But before we dive into those three persons, let me read the rest of Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6. What we don't want to do, here's a mistake that can be made when we study theology or we study scripture, is that we can become focused or enamored with knowing things. And we can be fascinated and and excited about just the, the knowledge itself or the complexity of things or whatever, and we can miss the ultimate goal, which is God's Uh, drawing us into relationship with him so that in that relationship we may give him glory. It says this in the rest of this Deuteronomy passage. So God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So God reveals himself as the only God, and the demand of that is that we would love him with all of our heart, soul, and might. So to know God, to understand him, to study him, is insufficient if all you have then is head knowledge. It is not effective or meaningful unless there is, at the end of the day, love for God and a living for his glory. And that's, that's what we are after. We want God to receive the glory that is due his name. In your book on page 73, it says, Because there is only one God, he alone should be the ultimate object of our affections. And that is absolutely right. Okay, so we know in Scripture explicitly there is only one God, and only one God to whom we owe our lives, love, and worship. But then we also see that there are these three persons revealed that are God. They are each God, but they are not each other. This distinction is primarily seen in how the persons of the Trinity relate to the other persons, and in how uh, redemption is accomplished in the Scriptures. It says this in your book on page 72, the differences among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are found in the way they relate to one another and the role each plays in accomplishing their unified purpose. So that's where we see this unity in Trinity or Trinity in unity. The Trinity is revealed in some ways, progressively throughout Scripture. In fact, you see it more clearly in the New Testament, and we can show you examples of that. But you see this even in the Old Testament. There are echoes um, right there in the beginning of our Bibles. In Genesis chapter 1, it says this. It says, Then God said, Let me make man in my image. Is that what it says? No, it says let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So you see echoes or reflections to some degree of this trinity in unity or unity in trinity even at the outset of the creation account, a couple of things that I do want to draw our attention to what we don't have time today is is walk through Christ and his divinity and the holy spirit in the holy Spirit's divinity. You're actually going to focus on that in subsequent assignments, but I do want to point out a couple of just quick uh points quickly. part of what got Jesus killed was what yeah claiming to be God okay so uh Jesus himself claimed to be God in the flesh, but we also see the writers of the New Testament clearly ascribing divinity to the Son, and the Son being incarnate, the man Christ. The Holy Spirit also, we see specifically, even in the Old Testament, uh, instances where uh, the Holy Spirit is described also as God. You see this in in, in kind of one uh, compact place, in this great commission that's given to the church. So when we're called as a church to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, we're also called to baptize them in what? Yeah, you guys got it. You've seen enough baptisms. You got the formula down, okay? By the way, this is why we say what we say when we baptize you. We're trying to obey the great commission. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're baptizing them and referencing each person of the Trinity as we do. Which, by the way, um, this is very clearly and maybe most fundamentally what is unique about the Christian faith or the Christian religion, this idea of Trinity in unity, unity in Trinity. Another place where you see all three persons of the Trinity acting um, in in the creation and specifically in the recreation of creation and redemption. You see this in Hebrews chapter 9. All three persons involved in accomplishing the redemption of God's people. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? god so all three persons working together um, in unity to accomplish our redemption so here's here's the question or here here's kind of where we come is after we see these scriptures okay we get this trinity and unity unity and trinity we get this idea one god in three persons so where do we go off on this where do we go wrong in our uh, understanding of the trinity Here's my simple answer. If you think you've come up with a good analogy for what the Trinity is like, you are a heretic. (laughs) Okay? There's almost no way to come up with a workable analogy that doesn't somehow obscure what Scripture teaches about God as Trinity. The only thing, and, and I'm even afraid to do this, just because of how easy it is to mess this up. This diagram is in your book on page 72. If somebody's like, can you explain the Trinity? If you have to use a picture, use this, okay? (laughs) This is about as good as it gets. But this idea that each person is God, but each person is distinct and not one another. Um, If you're interested in a humorous explanation of the Trinity and these various heresies, see me after class, and I will send you a video that will explain it to you. Uh, It's for adults, and adults, you will make the decision whether or not you want your kids to see the video. Uh, but you can ask me for that after class. Um, in this video, though, what, what is referenced is this Athanasian Creed. And again, our uh, statement of faith on the Trinity, as you read it, you can see, yep, I feel, I see this Athanasian Creed at the back of our statement of faith. So if you will turn in your book, I want to read this statement on the Holy Trinity just so everyone can get this summary statement, which I think captures very well our understanding of the Trinity. It says this, the Holy Trinity, the one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinitely excellent and all glorious. Each person is fully God, sharing the same deity, attributes, and essential nature, yet there is but one God. Each person is distinct, yet God is not by this distinction divided into three parts, natures or gods, The Father has always existed as Father, the unbegotten fountain of all life. The Son has always existed as Son, eternally begotten of the Father, uncreated and without beginning, of one essence with the Father. The Holy Spirit has always existed as Spirit, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, and of one essence with them. The Godhead thus exists in perfect unity, indivisible as to nature and substance, yet inseparably inseparably distinguished as persons, who enjoy a fullness of fellowship and love. Wow, and I want to worship that God, okay? What a powerful statement of of what we believe and cherish about how God has revealed himself to us. Okay, so enacting the doctrine. So, okay, we know this about God, but how is this supposed to affect our lives? One is to just stand in awe of who God is and the unique nature of who our God is. And to have this joy of praying to God, not just vaguely as God, but actually having in mind the persons of the Trinity even as we pray. And to marvel at the fact that part of how we understand God is all-sufficient and all-satisfied in himself is that he's not relying upon creatures to have relationship. And that we, as his creatures, reflect the fact that we are intended to live in a relationship because God is in relationship. And he invites us by his mercy into relationship with him. Okay. Any questions or comments before we move on to talk about God's attributes? Okay, here's where I'm going to ask uh, folks to um, share a little bit. So the second thing I want to cover today are uh, attributes of God. And since we can't do justice to all of them, I won't try to talk about any of them. I want to give a few summary statements and then actually hear hear from you from the assignment. So our summary uh, that we want to give for this for this section is God's attributes are his characteristics or perfections as revealed in scripture. There are incommunicable attributes that are totally unique to God, and there are communicable attributes that are attributes which are shared with human beings. In other words, characteristics or attributes that we reflect by virtue of being made in God's image. In your book, there's actually this fantastic table. Uh, if If you remember this, you open up your book on page 64 and following, this fantastic table, which is like the most distinct summary that I'm aware of, of, of God's attributes, where we see those attributes revealed in Scripture and what the implications are for our lives. So uh, very much strongly recommend that to be a study for you if you weren't able to dive into that in any great depth during the assignment. Um, but very, very helpful. So a few statements first off about incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes that I want to hear from you. Uh, main affirmation's for incommunicable attributes. So God is independent. He is I am. He is immutable or unchangeable. He is eternal. So he's unlimited as it relates to time, which that boggles my mind as somebody who works in a world that, that thinks about time and different time scales, especially really, really, really short time scales. That blows my mind. Um, his omnipresence or his him being unlimited with regards to space also blows my mind so these are ways in which god is is unique and not like us and not like his creation but then there are many attributes that we as humans to varying degrees uh, do share with him things like wisdom faithfulness love holiness and the like. So, in these attributes, we get to reflect the very character or nature of God in our lives, and it's usually as we review those that we realize how poorly we reflect those things, and realize that we need the Holy Spirit's help to grow. <laughs> if uh, hopefully I'm not alone in that, but as we survey these attributes of God, there's ways in which our hearts are affected, our lives are impacted, and ways in which we're invited to worship the Lord. So in your assignment, you had uh, this assignment to take three attributes um, and kind of write out your own definition and implications for these. So I want to take just a couple of minutes, maybe two folks, say, here's the attribute, uh, one of the attributes I wrote down. Here's an implication that encouraged me or kind of floored me or or wowed me as I considered this attribute. So raise a hand and, and throw one out there. I also wrote holiness down. I think it's one that I think about, but I don't necessarily meditate on. Um, I wrote, He is unlike us in His perfection and moral purity, separate other. He's correct, He's right, He's unstained and unstainable, majestic in holiness. Uh, You have the statement of the splendor of His holiness. His name is holy. He's innocent, unstained, separated, exalted in the heavens, pure, worthy to be praised. And as you think about his holiness, there's just as you alluded to, there's an awareness of our great unholiness, an awareness of our great being stained by our sin. And, and, and what a mercy that we have this message of hope in Christ to be delivered from our sins and reconciled to a holy God. We can actually enter the presence of a holy God because of what Christ has done for us. What's another one? I I also wrote down sovereignty. Uh, Fewer aspects of who God is have brought more comfort and and more uh, sustaining grace in the midst of really hard things than understanding his sovereignty. In fact, we'll talk more about how his sovereignty is sort of exercised in in time and in creation as we think about his providence here in, in just a little bit. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's kind of wish we could just do that the rest of the time, but I want to make sure we look at uh, creation and providence. So uh, the third topic we want to cover is God as creator and understanding God as actually creating all that we know and see. Here's the doctrine sum, doctrinal summary. Creation is the mighty act of God to bring to existence the universe and all it contains, including this world and human beings. For His glory, as we survey the Scriptures, it's also very clear um, that God made everything that we see out of nothing, which boggles my mind. Again, all human beings can do is is take things that already exist and change them to some degree to be something else functionally. We don't have the ability, in, in putting like nuclear physics aside, we don't have the ability really to make much change. We just take what's here and turn it into something else for another purpose. God creates completely out of nothing. Biblical support that we see for this, I think everybody's read at least the first sentence or two of your Bible, regardless of how long maybe you've been around the church. And we have this statement in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning which, again, is kind of funny to me. It's like already God's accommodating to our brains because we just talked about how he's eternal. (laughs) In the beginning of what? Well, in the beginning of what I'm going to explain to you here and reveal to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. Therefore, he created it out of nothing that prior existed. Psalm 104, we see this statement. It gets a little bit more detail and a little bit more poetic about this creation. So Psalm 104, verse 5 through 9, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth so God creates all things and in those verses you also see he sustains all things in their place perhaps more importantly than that though as we interact with the created order we interact with the created order that's broken we interact with the created order that is under the curse of sin and under the curse God placed on the creation due to human sin But one of the amazing things about what we see in the scriptures is that God has a plan in the fullness of time to restore all of these things. So he's not only the creator of all that we see and know, he's also going to be the recreator of all that we see and know. In Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, you have this statement about the creation and God's intentions for creation. For the creation waits with eager longing So not only has God created all things, but he has a specific purpose in all that his, he's created. And ultimately, as Curtis reminded us just a few moments ago, his purpose is that he might have a people for himself to bring him glory for eternity, and that we would honor and exalt Christ for, re- for accomplishing this redemption for all eternity. Finally, I want to transition and talk about God's providence. As we think about God and his attributes and God as Trinity that we saw in the first two sections and we think about him as creator, you have to then start asking questions about how does God actually interact with his creation? Um, and what we see here is this, uh, these two aspects of God and the way he relates to his creation of transcendence and eminence. You saw this in, in your, in your, in your uh, book. So transcendence is this idea that God is above and separate and and unharmable by his creation, but at the same time, there's his eminence where he is involved intimately in the details of his creation. And the scriptures teach both. So you see transcendence in verses like Psalm 113, verse 4 through 6. says, The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? So you have this view of God being exalted and transcendent over all. And if all you think of God is this transcendent God, you are on your way to potentially be in error in the way that you view God. So then you have other verses like you find in Acts chapter 17 verses 26 through 27, who shows God intimately involved in the details of his creation. And it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So you have this view of God really orchestrating all of people's lives to get them to the places he wants them to be. And then it says this, yet he, God, is actually not far from each one of us. So God is both transcendent but also intimately involved in his creation. And we will go back to the prophet Isaiah who is going to roll these together into one single passage where he says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So there's our transcendence. And maybe this is a God that does exist, but we can't know him, right? Maybe. And then there's these three words, if you translate it into English, which are amazing. So he says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So he is both transcendent, but he is also imminent. He is both intimately present with those who are contrite and lowly of spirit and also with. So what we see as we survey scripture is we see that this transcendent God is sovereign over all intimately involved in all, and is moving everything about for his ultimate good purposes. And this can get a little tricky. And, of course, there's mystery here as well, just like we talked about with the Trinity. So there's ways in which we can speculate about God's providence that get us off track. In fact, John Calvin, one of the theologians that most people talk about when they talk about this idea of God's sovereignty or um, providence and kind of how that works its way out in, uh, in life, he cautioned against speculation. He cautioned against going beyond what the Scriptures teach or what are necessary consequences uh, from what we see in Scripture. So we do have to be careful with this topic. But there's a couple of key st- uh, passages of Scripture that I think will help us understand this in a balanced and helpful way. So God's providence said very succinctly is the continuing work of God to sustain in existence the created universe and all it contains, directing it towards its divinely designed end, that being the glory of God. So once, one area where you see God's sovereignty and God's intimate involvement in everything is what I'm going to refer to as these bookend passages. So you have these bookend passages which show God intimately involved and sovereignly ruling over seemingly random things, and then God also being sovereign and ruling over what seems like uh, some of the most powerful wills that you will find on earth or in creation. So Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap. The dice is rolled onto the settlers of Catan board, if you will. But what? It's every decision is from the Lord. So God sovereignly reigns over even seemingly random things. So that's kind of all the way over here on this side of life. And then all the way over on the other side of life, we see that God is sovereign over the most absolute of human wills that this creation knows, that being the heart of a king. In this time period and throughout uh, the history that most of our Bible is written, these are different types of kings and kingdoms and things like that. And the person who ruled over and whose will was supreme in a given area was typically the king. So this absolute human will is seen as irresistible. But this is what Proverbs 21 says about the king's heart. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord turns it wherever he will. And everything in between under the sovereign hand of God, being attended to in great intimate detail by our Creator God. But inevitably, as we, as we think about passages like this, we can be tempted to, to wonder about, well, what does this mean about hard circumstances or hard events? What does this mean about evil? Is God the author of sin? And we would say, no, we reject any idea that God is the author of sin. But what we also see clearly in the pages of Scripture is that all of the things that happen in God's unfolding plan to redeem a people for himself are under his sovereign hand, and that includes even the sinful actions of human beings. And there are two places I want to take us to show how this works in scripture. And what I'm doing here is not an attempt to win a theological debate, not an attempt to say, ha ha, we're right in our understanding and other theological traditions are wrong. What we get as we look at this is we should be warmed in our hearts and blown away in our minds at this sovereign, gracious God who works even the terrible things we experience in this life for our ultimate good And for his glory. That's what we're after. This is a God that is worthy of our praise. This is a God that is worthy of our very lives. And so we're going to take a look at two stories or two instances in Scripture that show both human sin being worked out in pretty horrific circumstances, but ultimately God is sovereign over them to bring about his good purposes. So the first one is the story of Joseph that you have in Genesis. So just real quick, just by way of reminder, Joseph is uh, what I would refer to as sort of a punk a little bit with his brothers, and his brothers don't like him, and they essentially sell him as a commodity or a slave into Egypt. And things go pretty good for Joseph, and then they go pretty bad for Joseph, and then they go pretty good for Joseph. And ultimately, Joseph is exalted to a place of great authority and prominence in Egypt. And his brothers eventually come looking for help in the midst of a famine to Egypt. And long story short, they end up realizing, hey, this brother that we sold into slavery— Uh, He's now ruling Egypt and he can do with us whatever he wants because we've come begging for help And again, I can't do the whole passage justice But what you see emerge from this experience in joseph's life Is a is a deep understanding of the way god's sovereignty works even over evil and even over the evil that we face in our individual lives so here is joseph's summary of his life under the sovereign hand of god he says this to his brothers his sinful conniving brothers as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today And then, of course, we see a very similar set of ideas brought together when we consider the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, so this was God's plan and all the details that got him there, He's speaking to those who crucified Jesus. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The sins of mankind unwittingly play into the good sovereign purposes of God. And a similar statement is made later in Acts. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So even the horrific miscarriage of justice that led to the crucifixion of Christ was ultimately under God's sovereign hand. On page 142 of your book, there is this uh, good summary statement. It says, even human rebellion unintentionally ends up serving the perfectly wise purposes of God. Nothing Not even sin and great evil can ever ultimately frustrate God's sovereignty. Christians can be sure that God will one day defeat all sin, evil, and suffering. Until then, God can be trusted, even when in the short term it may not seem to be so from our earthly human perspective, because he is wise, holy, sovereign, and powerful, and is always working out his plan to perfection. Doesn't that just warm your heart? Doesn't that also make you um, grieve to believe the alternative? That ultimately something or someone else is is master of this universe? No, this good, sovereign, gracious, holy God is the God that is running everything, and that is good news. I want to close by reading a quote and this quote comes from uh, theologian Herman Bovink. And, and in closing, what I want to do is not necessarily summarize what we've looked at, but I want to add my voice to continue uh, for you to continue in this study and in this uh, Christian foundation's cornerstone you. When we come and study theology, or we study what the Bible teaches about things, ultimately, we're trying to know this God who's revealed himself to us, and also to know him as he's revealed himself in these last days in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, And I want to whet your appetite for what you are going to learn as you study the Christian faith. This is how Herman Bavink summarizes the Christian faith. He says, The essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father... Ruined by sin is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. Studying theology shows us how God, who is all-sufficient in himself, nevertheless glorifies himself in his creation, which even when it is torn apart by sin, is gathered up again in Christ— It describes for us God, always God, from beginning to end, God in his being, God in his creation, God against sin, God in Christ, God breaking down all resistance through the Holy Spirit and guiding the whole of creation back to the objective he decreed for it. And that objective is the glory of his name. That is what we're going to see as we study God's word and understand our Bibles. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for their eagerness and their desire to study and know your word. I pray that you would bless them in this endeavor. I pray that you would use these few weeks to strengthen our church and to, and to light fires in our hearts to want to live for your glory and proclaim your excellencies. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash U.